Oh yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> Hang on, let me see if I can do that. Let's see how this one sounds. Oh dear. Now don't that send me back. Yeah. Um or maybe this one. Fifty six K. And that one that's I think the, the first one was one. better. The first one was way better. <laughs> Dialogue <laughs> remix? Oh god. Yeah, lame. I thought it was going to be a song like they were going to sample say, it. I was going to say, I am, I am exceedingly <laughs> disappointed now. Yeah, that was that was lame. Well, welcome back to another episode of Spam, 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 Humbug. This is episode 59, and we're a week late because, <coughs> excuse me, I'm actually <coughs> still a little sick. Not doing so hot tonight, but voice is back enough that I can uh, kind of muddle my way through this. So, who all do we have with us tonight? We actually have uh, at least one new face, and... Hey, look that. He's first on the list. So we welcome tonight Attentive Dragon to the podcast. Woo! Hello. Welcome. And of course, you also heard cheering in the back there, um, returning to us, finally able to catch up with us after a favorable shift in terms of time. Uh, Linguistic Dragon is back. Hi, hi. And of course, we've also got Gradia Dragon. Good evening, everyone. And Boolean Dragon is here as well. What's going on? So, it's been a couple of weeks, and as a result, I do have a handful of new Ultimate Dragons to say hello to at any rate. Let me see who I got here. Mostly on the Facebook group, we welcome Josh, Wolf, Arndt, Dathan, Dona, Jared, Andreas, Matthew, Aura, Chris, Richard, Carolyn, Jared, Patrice, Dev Shao, Jennifer, Ben, and Edwin. And on Google Plus, we welcome Brian. Welcome and splut to all. <coughs> and as always, of course, this episode of Spam, Spam, Spam Humbug is brought to you by our Patreon backers. So thank you to everyone who supports the podcast and the Ultima Codex by that means. And especially a hearty thank you to our co-producers, Seth, Johnny, Dominic, Chris, Violation, Adam, Avatars Radio, Eric, Thor1, Pascal, Neil, and Helgruff. So, as I mentioned, I was sick last week. This uh, prevented us from recording because I have no voice. Ever since I started podcasting now, it's like I get anything more than a hint of a cold, and my voice is just like, yeah, I'll see you in three days. Or <laughs> a week in this case, whatever. I suppose I didn't really help myself by... Uh, you know, because let me think, started to lose it on about Wednesday. And then there was like this big cub meeting that night. So of course, I was using my voice a lot. And then Thursday, Friday, by Friday, I was just croaking. And then there was a big like combined camp for the cubs and the beavers that weekend. So I really didn't do myself any favors in terms of getting my voice back. But whatever. It's you back should have now. communicated an interpretive dance. Mm, you know, I'm just not that good of a dancer. <laughs> Although I did take my wife ballroom dancing for our anniversary, which uh, also happened Aww. last week. So, oh yeah. What you should do is get with linguistic, since he's an expert on tea, and see if there's anything out there—some bizarre tea from Asia, right, with some ground-up rhinoceros horn in it or whatever—that <laughs> that will soothe your voice. The mm. only thing I really suggest on that front is ginger tea for stomach problems. Mm. I've been doing all right. I've got some actually really good teas around here. My wife's a big fan and uh, unpasteurized honey. So that helps. Yep. This is very sweet tea that I have in front of me right now. Anyways, um, Kevin, how you been the last couple of weeks? Uh, pretty good. Um, just doing a lot of little things uh, here and there. Um, mostly working on the playroom for my uh, for my son. Uh, he's four, so. I actually painted the ceiling of his playroom uh, flat black and uh, from one corner to the other 
I'm actually doing in blacklight paint, uh, the Milky Way, the, the galactic plane, I think they call it, um, that you can see if you live somewhere that doesn't have a lot of uh, light pollution. Uh, so that's been really fun. Been working on the arcade machine some. Got the bezel in it. Um, like just the last couple of days, I've been screwing around with a RetroPie. It's a Linux distro that's just for running old games that is custom made for a Raspberry Pi, which is like a small, you know, $30, $35 uh, computer. Yeah, they're great. Uh, yeah, they are, they are. They are. It's a revolution that you can have that powerful of a machine that's that small and as versatile as it is, you know, the GPIO pins and all of that um, for such a negligible price that you can use in anything, uh, you know, for robots or little touchscreen displays for playing music or it's just crazy. You could literally do anything with them. They're, they're pretty badass. So I've been having some fun with that. Awesome. How about you, Gudia? What you been up to? work I've been tired lately <laughs> there's some migration that we had to do and we had little time to do it so I've been working a lot gotcha and how about you linguistic our our long lost member where <laughs> what have you been up to work mostly um, but uh, the busy season for us is finally winding down so it means fewer late nights which means more opportunity to be here yes i like the sound of course of, that. of course um we'll see what happens next month because um national novel writing month approaches and yes <laughs> and as this is um a tradition of mine for the past um Oh, good grief. How long have I been doing this? I think this is my 10th year doing it. Crazy. Yeah, no kidding. Speaking of writing linguistic, we're like long, long overdue to do another one of those dramatic writings and readings, um, you know, of a story from Ultima where I get the fun task of adding 10,000 sound effects to it. <laughs> <laughs> we are. I have ideas bouncing around in my head. I just haven't had the time to write them. Yeah, we need to do it. We do. Guy hasn't even had a chance to really maintain his blog apart from that one little cursory post he put up the other day. I know. I feel bad that I haven't added anything since then, but oh well. <laughs> You're probably on like, what, Ultima 8 by now? <laughs> I could be. <laughs> For all we know. Nope, still Savage Empire. I refuse to play further until I've written about my past session, which is a bit of a block sometimes, but it is what it is. Yeah, it makes sense in its own way. Exactly. All right. And how about you, Attentive? Anything been interesting happening with you, either in real life or in your gaming? Well, it's the last two weeks of competition season for marching bands, so I've been busy being a roadie for a bunch of teenagers. (laughs) (laughs) They basically have all all the parents' uh, job is to carry all the pit equipment on and off the field at competitions, and so... We're the heavy lifters. You know, as a scout leader, I can totally sympathize with that. Absolutely. And actually, that's been most of what I've been up to for the last couple of weeks is all scouting stuff. Um, Meetings and camps and organizing more camps. And uh, it's just been crazy. I haven't had too, too much time for gaming. Um, I am looking forward to checking out Skyrim, which is downloading as we speak. And then kind of parallel to that, there was also a big update for Star Trek Online that I'm looking forward to checking out because I guess when they brought Star Trek Online to console, they gave it a huge graphics update and they've only now looped back around and pushed all of the advanced features to the PC version of the game. So it'll be interesting to see what that looks like. That's ironic. Yeah, well, (laughs) I mean, the game's been established on PC for a while. So, you know, it, it's not like there was a, I don't think there was ever really a risk that they were going to abandon the PC audience, but <coughs> I don't know how big the team at Cryptic is. So maybe they just decided, you know what, we're just going to get the console release out, get it stable. And then once that's done, loop back, throw the graphics improvements onto the PC side and away we go. Well, damn them. <laughs> <laughs> not too much though. They're the only people who know how to make a decent combat system in an MMO. Oh, okay. Anyways, 
Um, what else did I have before we dive into topic? Oh, right. I am thinking of changing up the hosting on the Codex. More news to follow, but you've probably noticed, I don't know if you've been following the Codex at all, I haven't really posted much in the last week, um, partly because I've been so busy and partly because I am really contemplating making a hosting change. And the more static I keep the site, the easier it is to just pull it all down and put it all back up in a new location. So that's developing and we will see where that leads us. But for now, let's talk about something else. What are we going to talk about tonight? Well, it's in the title, which came first, the story or the game? And really the question is, what's the best way to design a game? And in particular, a game with a story. Do you solidify the story first or do you get the underlying tech in place and then craft a story around it? And I mean, we can go to, let's face it, Ultima is kind of our thing. So, is for the it? most, uh, so I hear. <laughs> so I hear. That's the rumor. I thought this was the Final Fantasy Dragons. I'm going to log out. This is crap. <laughs> 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 Would they be called the Final Fantasy Dragons? I could see them being more like uh, Chocobos. I was thinking Moogles myself. Mm-hmm. There you go. Ooh. That's all Moogles. right. Um, but anyways, looking at Ultima, I don't, and I mean, this is something that Stirring Dragon shared as well in his notes, but I, I do share the view here. I really don't think Garriott ever, Richard Garriott ever designed his games with the story in mind first, at least not in the sense of, you know, I mean, I think he kind of came into each game with an idea of, you know, the story he probably wanted to tell, Right. It's not like he'd probably just lay down the entire tech for Ultima 4 and then it's just like, I want to make this story about virtue and about, you know, there's not even going to be a final antagonist that you have to defeat. <coughs> um, you know, I, I do think that he had that general idea of what he wanted the game to be about when he started work on the tech for it. And that was probably true all the way up to Ultima 9. But I do think, and good idea, I think you had the official book of Ultima in front of you, but I'm pretty sure that in the official book of Ultima, there's a section where he talks about how really his uh, scheme was always to lay down the engine and the graphics and do all the world building and the tech and get the systems in place and then craft the story around that. And ideally to take advantage of it to, you know, its maximum effect. Yes, and I'm still looking for the part where it, tells about it but basically yes he he didn't have a full story or anything while he was writing the engine he will he would write the tools for what for the game and then try to come up with the then he worked on the story but basically he would write something that would fit what the engine was capable of doing Right. Yeah, I think uh, I think Richard Garriott. I've never gotten the impression from Richard Garriott as much as he professes the importance of story in a game, and as much as he likes it, I've never gotten the impression that he is a great writer of stories. And uh, some evidence to that effect, you know, is uh, how inspired he was by the Lord of the Rings series and elements that he cribbed in the early games from that <laughs> and Star Wars. And a bunch of other things, and also how, granted, the tech was extremely limited at the time, but how basic the stories were in the early games. So I think his approach may be founded somewhat in him playing to his strengths. Um, and he puts the story in there because he's interested in a story, but he might not be, you know, a, a master at actually crafting one. And I could be wrong about this, but like in Ultima 5 and in six and seven, I'm guessing in those games, did he have help? Did he have a writer at that point to to help him flesh out his basic ideas um, from the philosophies that he came up with? Um, well, I know. A, I think we can probably look that up. I mean, Moby Games isn't the most reliable source um, because, of course, it does allow for a fair bit of self-editing from what I understand. But like if I look at the credits for Ultima 1. Um, yeah, original concept was Richard Garriott. Programming was 
Garrett and Kenneth Arnold. Um, not too many other credits there. Let's skip ahead to like Ultima 4 and look at the credits for that. Okay, uh, C64 version is probably fairly authoritative. So yeah, like for Ultima 4, plot collaboration and the history of Britannia, that was Roar Adams III. Um, so, you know, definitely by Ultima 4, he starts to have help in crafting the story and the lore of the game. Ultima 5, looking at the credits here. Again, we'll stick with the C64 version just for consistency. Um, now, here we don't have a specific writing credit, but there's a lot of design credit, which goes to Richard Garriott, Mark Hamner, Paul Isaac, Stuart Marks, Stephen Muse, John Miles, Toshi Morita, Chris Roberts, and Dallas Snell. So if I had to guess, it's probably within this well, and then, of course, the manual is written by Marsha Muse, John Miles, uh, Lori Agulu, Dallas Snell, and Douglas Wyke, or Wiki. So, yeah, it definitely looks like he, by Ultima 5, we have a pretty dedicated team that is working on the story for the game. And skipping once more to my beloved Ultima 6. Uh, and actually, I'm going to skip back now because the authoritative version of Ultima 6 is very clearly the DOS version. And for this one, uh, yes, writing, dialogue, story. So you had Manda D, Stephen, Stephen Beeman, Richard Garriott, Greg Paul Malone II, John Miles again, Herman Miller, Todd Mitchell Porter, David Shapiro, and Warren Spector. So yeah, big writing team. Um, and then of course, Ultima 7 had a quite large writing team as well, which was overseen by novelist Raymond Benson. And Really, it's Benson's influence, I think, that kind of is what makes Ultima 7 stand out because, you know, he really made sure that there was this very strong consistency in terms of like all the dialogue and how it was written and yeah. how they, and it's written like a novel, right? Like it's not, you know, th there's all of that. We talked about this in previous episodes, right? The flavor text that's the describing text. how the characters are acting, you know, their, their facial movements or their mannerisms or things like that. And that's present in Ultima 6, but it's Ultima 7 that really takes most advantage of it. Yeah, it definitely shines out more in Ultima 7 than in 6. But you're right, it is there in 6 to a degree. So anyways, at least by Ultima 4, yes, a bunch of writers on board um, and, you know, working on crafting the stories for these games. Which, I mean, I guess makes a lot of sense because... By then, Origin was established, you know, they'd had a real hit with Ultima 3, there'd been a couple of other games, I think, that had been pushed out. Um, so, you know, like, they were definitely in a position to grow the team and bring on some dedicated writing talent. Whereas, you know, with Ultima 1, Ultima 2, maybe not so much. But, um, but yeah, I think you do have a point there, Kevin, because, you know, yeah, Garriott does definitely seem, his strength does seem to be more on the tech side than on the storycraft side. And now that said, I mean, you know, he does come up with the the concepts. He did come up with the concepts for each of for most of the games. Um <coughs> at least the the mainline numbered games like Serpentile, he really had nothing to do with. He's the executive producer, so he like signs the checks and that's about it. And you can tell actually just how uninvolved he was with Serpentile because of how non-present Serpentile is in any of, or in almost all of Ultima 9, right? And I don't mean that actually as a shot against Ultima 9. Like, that's really an artifact of the fact that Garriott and consequently anybody else working on the writing team uh, for Ultima 9, like, they weren't involved with Serpentile and... um it just really didn't fall into their considerations when they were laying down the plot for Ultima 9. It's it's really a blind spot in just how they designed the whole thing. So, Well, uh, back, back to what I was saying about people playing to their strengths, and I can attest to this in the types of games that I've, you know, attempted to make since forever, since I first started programming, you know, an infinite number of years ago. Um you know, you want to get something done. And so you're going to concentrate on what you can do well and not necessarily in what you would like to do well. Uh, I think that's a natural thing for people um, in life in general. So as, as far as the basic question of like, which is better, 
um, to come up with a story first and design the engine around that or to design the engine first and then incorporate the story into that engine as it permits and the best you can, that actually might be dependent upon the strengths of the individual developer or on the uh, team of developers. Um, you know, you do what you're best at to get the best product. Don't yeah, be something I, you're, you're terrible at and expect it to be great. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's one of I those mean, things. It's, it's, oh, go ahead. Well, I was I was just going to say that it's it's like any creative endeavor. There's no one hard and fast rule that works 100% of the time. Uh, it's, you know, things change depending on personal style, depending on, you know, genre and context and and like you say, it it depends on the individual strengths of who's making it in the first place as to what's going to be the most prominent and most polished. Yeah. I mean, I think pretty much every game is going to start with, you know, the basic concept of what it should be about and what kind of game it's supposed to be, right? So, you know, sort of like a basic idea of, I want the game to be about this, and these are some of the basic actions that I want the player to be doing. That's how um, Stirring framed it. And I do think that's kind of, you know, I mean, that seems like a legitimate first point, right? I want to make a platformer game, and it's going to be about... Uh, cute little critter trying to collect balloons. Okay. You need that because you yourself going into making the game kind of have to understand what you're actually trying to accomplish. If you're going to be telling a story, you might even hash out a basic plot, but, and this is another thing that Stirring points out, um, it's one of those things where, especially in, you know, what you lay out in the initial stages, don't get too attached to it. This is probably something that's going to be evolved and iterated upon a lot as you move along. Um, I mean, we saw that, um, we saw that illustrated most poignantly with Ultima nine, of course, where, you know, they kind of laid down the initial idea for the story and then they drew up a whole bunch of plot documents and started working on tech. And then there were all the various shakeups that happened and the tech had to be modified and it had to be, adjusted and in some cases had to be scaled down and in some cases had to be taken in a completely different direction and the story was just adjusted and adjusted and rewritten and adjusted now in the case of ultima 9 the argument can definitely be made that it was too much and um i don't think there's any harm in saying as much um, and i have a part here of the book of ultima the sharing the workload for the first time, Garriott decided he wouldn't write a single line of actual code for the game. He would focus on designing the data structures for the world editor, and later on writing the story, populating the dungeons with monsters and treasures, filling the town with people and artifacts, among a variety of other roles he would play. With a dedicated team of writers, programmers, and artists committed to the project, he knew Ultima 6 should have already been finished. But he had thrown out a year's work on the Apple after deciding to write it on the most powerful machine available, an MS-DOS clone, which would make Ultima 6 the first in the series to be programmed on anything but an Apple. It also put Origin Team on the scoreboard as having produced the first major role-playing series to take full advantage of the IBM's VGA graphics. And it's 266 colors and exquisite detail. Probably the hardest part of the transition was getting Gary to give up the Apple, as he promptly slapped an Apple sticker on his MS-DOS computer. Just when I thought a comparison could never oh, be made between, between Ultima 6 and Ultima 9, now we have it. A massive rewrite. Yep, there's <laughs> just seems to be a thing. Um, I was going to say... I was wondering which game you were describing there, but the minute you talked about him doing primarily the world building and, you know, uh, systems design, it was clear that it had to be Ultima 6 because, yeah, he definitely, he really threw himself into, he did a lot of the world build for that game. I don't think he actually got back into the code of an Ultima game until Ultima 9, actually. So, there you go. And he... He had actually hinted to it, or at least the possibility of it, when he was uh, talking about Shroud of the Avatar early in development. 
he was just mentioning the fact that unity was so easy when he was attempting to sell the choice of unity that, you know, for the first time in forever, I can actually get back in and touch the code myself. I don't yes. know that he actually did it, but he did say that. Well, I don't have the source code for Shroud of the Avatar, but uh, I can tell you, man, he came up with some weird data structures for Ultima 9. <laughs> you'll, you'll either be in awe or in agony if... Uh, were I to ever show you the uh, the the logic behind the uh, the gypsy conversation? Anyways, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's all in C plus plus. So I mean, I find it painful by default, but oh yeah, those damn semicolons. Hate them. <clears throat> no, I don't mind the semicolons. Just the rest of the darn language. It's funny because I find C so elegant, and I really thrive in C sharp. But C++, it's just like, oh, this is just, mm, no, no. Maybe it's because I had a really, when I took it in university, I had a couple of really terrible teachers that were just like out to punish students. Maybe that's why it leaves a bad taste in my mouth. I'm not sure. But anyways, I think looking at the development history of Ultima and uh, again, just cribbing broadly from what Stirring wrote as well here. You definitely see, you know, the game technology um, gets built first and it puts a lot of influence on the story. But at the same time, I think the story also comes back and influences some of the game mechanics as well. Um, Serpentile is actually a really good example of this <laughs> because they took so much of the U7 engine. Hi, honey. And there are lots of things that I'm being influence the story. <laughs> I like hugs. There are lots of things that influence the story. Uh, for example, from the stories I have been writing, the originals were um, using the Dungeons and Dragons rule set, then changed to Pathfinder. And, and lastly, I changed to my own rule set. And changing to a different rule set than those has has made it more well much easier for me to write since if we talk about Dungeons and Dragons or Pathfinder or any other such games, there are lots of things that you take for granted. And there are lots of definitions. There are magical spells which you assume they are available. On the other hand, if I have my own rule set, I can restrict, for example, the ability to revive other people and then the, the dramatic impact of someone dying is much, much different than it is in Dungeons and Dragons or Pathfinder or most any other role-playing game. So you're effectively modifying the uh, engine to support the story in that case. Uh, yeah. Most, yeah, that's basically it. So uh, if you have a very, if you have a, a way for the player to be able to resurrect other people or other characters, you are basically making death something less dramatic, less important. Why can't I phoenix hand, down Eris? Yeah. <laughs> exactly. That's one of the points that that I want, wanted to make with this that you that many people in Final Fantasy games wonder why did he die permanently? Why can't I use a phoenix down or or life or life two or or protect him with life three before before he's even killed or whatever. <laughs> this is this is why my particular answer as to which came first, the story or the game, would be yes. Yes, I suppose so. I well, mean, because I've said it I've said it before and I will say it again until I'm blue in the face. You have to adjust your techniques, your storytelling techniques to fit the medium. And in order for a game to have a story and to, for a story to be an important part of a game and for the game to still feel cohesive, both have to support the other. So it's important when you're crafting a story for a game to know where you're going to end up and the uh, salient important points of how you're going to get there. 
but you also have to know how the game mechanics are going to support it. Yeah, because, I mean, ultimately, you don't want to paint yourself into a corner where uh, you're trying to do something with your story that is just not realizable with the game engine. That's bad. And at the same time, you don't want to have systems or spells or abilities or things present in the game, you know, as part of its engine, as part of its mechanics, as part of its system. Your mechanics will affect the pacing of the story, too. <laughs> yeah. But you also so you don't, don't want, want to get this... bogged down in that. Mm -hmm. But you also don't want to have the situation where you're just like, why can't I resurrect that character? Exactly. And you don't want any frigid logic either. You know what frigid logic is? It's when you spend you spend several hours playing a game, and then you take a break to go to the fridge for a drink, and when you open the beer and take a sip, you wonder. Hey, why the hell am I unable to do this? Or why didn't the bad guy do that if that's possible? Or wait, or why, why didn't they everyone... just get the eagles to take them to drop the ring into Mount Doom? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. This is like every second movie I watch. Exactly. So yeah, yeah. You definitely have to be careful with your with your story with respect to how it will affect your engine, particularly if it's an engine that's already largely in place. Um, you know, like CryEngine or something, you know, if you're saying, okay, the story is you're flying around in spaceships and shooting people. And, you know, the guy in charge is like, hey, you should be able to like run around first person shooter like Call of Duty and shoot people too. You know, that could actually just delay your game indefinitely. And it could take uh, who knows how many years before you finish it. Oh, I saw a meme on Facebook earlier today that was like <laughs> exactly this. What was it? Um it was Assassin's Creed, and it was like the the assassin fighting uh, some, I don't know, you know, you, gosh, I don't even know which Assassin's Creed it was from. I don't know the series well enough, but, uh, you know, a red coat, let's say, right, to, to kind of use some American parlance to kind of establish era, and it, anyways. Said the Canadian. What was, what was the caption? Um, stabbed in the neck, keep fighting. Kicked over a fence? Die instantly. <laughs> yeah. So you don't want that. You, you don't, you don't want that. Uh, and I think that series is a great example of trying to shoehorn the game design to fit a story in so much as because it has that conceit that you're reliving memories. And if you go outside the bounds of the memory by too far, you quote desynchronize or in other words, fail the mission. So, they really constrain what the player can do and the freedom that the player has. It's like, oh no, you must go exactly to this place and do this in this amount of time or you, or you fail the mission. Uh. So it, it's very, in, in terms of in that case, they have a story. They have, you know, they have a basic framework in terms of how the game works, but this is the story. The game is going to serve that story and the player heaven help them if they want to go outside of that. Oh, you want to go to that part of town earlier than we want you to? No, you lose. Yeah. <laughs> Whoops. Yeah, I see. Yeah. I don't I don't like that in a in a game. Yeah. Yeah, there's Let's a lot of but it's frustrating. There's a lot of games that do that. They they have invisible roads or if you think about like the old Sierra games, you know, and you see like, oh look at this beautiful hand painted backdrop, like King's Quest Four, right, with the sixteen colors. Mm -hmm. And you're like, oh, you know, I need to pick up a stick. It's like, well, which one? There's 20 sticks and, you know, there's a rock. I can pick up this one stick, not the other sticks. And I definitely can't pick up that rock. And, you know, you find yourself typing commands, trying to figure out which things are just artwork and which things you can interact with. Yeah. That's, an ex that's an example of an engine that's designed to support a specific story. Yeah, pretty much. Because each scene is, you know, crafted in such a way that, you know, there's a set number of props and it's just, you find the prop and interact with it, and away you go. Versus and that was, something like an Ultima 6-type engine, where it's just like, hey, look, this thing isn't nailed down. I don't know if I need it, but I can take it. Right, and that was something that Richard Garriott actually like railed against, uh, made comments against specifically, um, referencing the Sierra Adventure games. And if you if you look at the back of the box for Ultima 6... They even use that as one of their selling points. You know, if you see it, you can use it. 
that, that was Garriott's personal rebellion well, against the popularity of the Sierra to. games. Right, yeah. right. I mean, I can, I can smash every mug in the in the uh, kingdom. I don't know why I'd need to do that, but I can do that. I can play the entire game through armed only with a steak knife. I thought you were just going to leave it at steak for a moment there. <laughs> or steak. Yes, I could play the entire game through armed only with a steak. But I can Are we talking the meat the or, or the things you stab vampires with? <laughs> I don't think there are Mutton. those kind of steaks in the game. <laughs> or I can play it through with a meat cleaver. <laughs> no. I did that once. That was one of my favorite bits, that you can yeah. actually use kitchenware as weaponry. Yes. And one of my games, the, there's a sacred weapon, which is actually a giant cleaver. Ho of destruction! <laughs> the exalted <Yep>. cleaver. <coughs> uh, I might have to wrap it up here sooner than I wanted to. Um, my voice is starting to go on me again here. Uh-oh. Oh, well. Most of the rest of the... I mean, I'm just looking over the in other news, and this is something I can add another day. Uh... Anyways, yeah, I mean, I guess, and you know, it, it's one of those things where I almost feel like there's not really that much discussion that even needs to happen around it, because of course it should be obvious that the process of designing a game should involve, I mean, obviously the story is going to iterate, and that's, obviously that's the tech is going to iterate. And you, have to, obviously you have to make sure you don't over plan either. True. And actually, that you, is, I think, the point that Stirring really hammered home as well in his notes. And it is very, very true that, yeah, you don't, you just don't want to overthink anything. <laughs> I can tell you a story from one of my past uh, NaNoWriMo's in which I, I found myself with writer's block for a solid week because I planned too much. And then my main character's love interest decided to make her move about seven chapters before I'd planned on it. And uh, neither I nor my main character knew what to do with it. You could have just worked that right into the story. <laughs> That's what I eventually did. You're just like, uh, what are you doing, girl? <laughs> That's basically what happened. Uh, one other thing, I, as far as as far as the future and how this discussion is is relevant to it, I think more and more, you know, in part due to the complexity of game design and the size of the teams, um, and just how expensive. Uh, and difficult, uh, and possibly a bad idea. Ultimately, it is to program your own engine from scratch for a game, for a, a large game with a large team with a large budget. Um, just the use of pre-existing third-party engines like Unreal, CryEngine, Unity, what have you. Uh, it's becoming more and more popular for both larger and smaller projects because it saves time. It saves money. Um, you don't have to reinvent the wheel as much. And those engines, they cater not just to systems and mechanics, but they also, of course, cater to the demands of all the different types of stories uh, that the writers are attempting to tell uh, with games. You know, that's, that's the future. Uh, I see that now. It's being used more and more. Um, so I think the dance between the two elements, uh, you know, they're getting closer and closer until they're, getting a little too intimate and essentially becoming the same thing. So I think these third-party engines support well, I'd argue that, that, both very that, well. That they are kind of the same thing when it comes to a game, in a sense, to begin with. Yeah, and I, and I think that's coming to fruition. I mean, people are no longer really, I think, less and less you know, having debates like this because of the availability of these engines that are created in order to support both elements harmoniously. Right. Even Gary himself, who used to, you know, swear by creating a new engine for each game because he thought it was a cop out. You know, he thought it he was being, you know, disingenuous or cheating his customers uh, by reusing the same engine over and over, which he saw with some other companies. And he's like, you know, this is bullshit. He's like, they're just reusing the same engine, you know, half the same assets, mixing a few things up. It's like a remix of a song that it wasn't original enough to, to warrant, um, you know, selling it for full price. And you saw him, you saw him starting to break from that philosophy a bit, uh, with the worlds of Ultima games. Uh, and now with him adopting unity for his big comeback, 
you know, after being gone for so long from game development with him using an out of the box third party engine, uh, I think he's almost completely discarded uh, the old idea. Well, I mean, the old idea was he was, by the way, kind of upset that they didn't go with a new engine for Serpentile. I remember that. But I mean, the old idea worked for as long as it did. But then, yeah, it all started to break down around the time of Ultima 7, actually. And, you know, they wrote a new engine for Ultima 8, but then it came time to actually build Ultima 9. They started with the Ultima 8 engine and just iterated on it. So, um, obviously, they iterated on it a heck of a lot, but still, they didn't just throw it out and start again. Although, you know, talking with Bill Randolph, he came back and actually said, you know, we probably actually should have done it the old way. But anyways, I mean, I, I'm personally a big fan of you know, developers making use of these existing engines. I actually really like seeing that sort of standardization at the tech layer. But then equally, I do think the point has been made that there is a, there is a bit of a limitation there. There is a bit of a, you know, you're, because by adopting that engine, you're wetting yourself to its limitations. And those limitations are like you didn't develop it, right? So they're limitations that are ultimately being imposed on you by another development team. For the maximum flexibility, if you have the ability to code your own engine, then, you know, I mean, you're going to give yourself the most flexibility, but it's also a lot easier to dig yourself into the deepest possible hole by doing that. So in in some ways in some ways though it's ba- it's really apples and oranges. I mean to to borrow and somewhat modify a metaphor from a wrinkle in time, you you can write either a sonnet or a poem in free verse. And a sonnet has a very rigid structure and you have to adhere to that whereas free verse is, you know, free verse, you can do whatever you want with it. But in some sense the impositions can be part of the medium itself. So it all depends on what you're trying to do. Of course, if you set out to write a limerick and you have a choice between sonnet and free verse as your tech base, <laughs> you're in trouble. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> I think that the analogy works well because, you know, with the free verse, you have the freedom to run wherever you want, but you also have the freedom to run right off a cliff. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, as I remember what Gary had wanted with writing his own engine from scratch was to actually uh, take advan- take the best of the best advantage of the most powerful ha- hardware at the time and they even pushed the boundaries and the limitations of the operating system and even when Microsoft was working on Windows 95, they promised it would run every single old DOS game from within Windows. And when they were working with Origin, they, the Origin, the guys from Origin told them about some functions they needed to, for the game to work. And Microsoft didn't believe them. They say that was not possible, that, it, that they were lying. So Origin had to actually show them what their code was doing. And Microsoft worked for several months trying to get those games to work. And in the end, what Microsoft did was create a system to automatically detect those games and create a shortcut which reboots the computer and boots it with the minimal drivers necessary for running it. I remember that. Was that because of the memory manager? Well, that was yeah, part of it. Those games. Yeah, they managed to do things that Microsoft thought they were impossible. They were supposed they weren't supposed to be possible with DOS with DOS oh boy back when 640k was enough for anybody right <laughs> as long yeah. as you could find that mouse driver that used 2k less you were fine it's it still is it still is but <laughs> to it actually is believe it or not but um people have just gotten used to you know the cinematic experience that's ultimately empty half the time uh but to linguistics point earlier though you know uh, about whether you use the, you know, he was uh, couching in literary terms, but you know, if, you, if you want to do, 
Right. If, if you if you use a new engine that significantly deviates in form from the previous engine, assuming the previous game was actually super popular, um, that can actually upset people because it's too different. You know, like when I, when I saw Ultima 8 and Ultima 9, uh, full disclosure, I have not played either game, but I've seen enough yeah. of them. To, I've seen enough of them to know um, it was it was too different. It was too different from what I had defined in my mind from playing every Ultima up to that point uh, for me to consider it a worthy Ultima game. And I was like, I, I want none of this. You know, they've gone too far afield. You know, I don't know what direction they're trying to push it in, but it's not the direction they've changed. You know, trajectory. You know, it was it was going in a predictable trajectory that I loved, and I, I wanted to see it continue. And it just took a left turn in my mind. I've so, seen similar complaints from dragons. Um, seen letters written, you know, many many years ago saying the same things about Ultima Six. So yeah, you're right. I mean, it and just, seven. I've and seen seven. it about seven too. Everyone has their definition of what an Ultima is, and there's right. always going to be that Ultima that falls outside of it. Well, I find I find that interesting because, like in my mind, six and seven were you know, the logical conclusion of the previous games and the previous engines. Yeah, well, they, we're the, young whippersnappers, so. <laughs> they, they, well, they, 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 for the most point, had the same systems, but then they'd add... Pretty much to, like your reaction to the new Zelda games. Yeah, exactly. like your reaction exactly. to the Zelda games. The newer exactly. Ones. Yeah, you had Zelda 1, 2, and 3. They Well, 2 is the exception, because they, they did take a left turn to 2. But 1 and 3... Uh, or essentially the same core engine and three added new features to what you'd expect from the, the first one, the Legend of Zelda. Um, but when they went to 3D, everything <coughs> changed. The, the mechanics changed, the graphics changed, the art style changed, the camera perspective changed, uh, the you know the control mappings, everything changed. Um, the same thing happened to Metroid. The same thing happened to Castlevania, where you know it's not even a platformer anymore. It's you know, it's not top down. It's not side scrolling. It's just a radical change. And unless you're playing to new generations that actually have no idea no, but, what the earlier games were like, you're going to be disappointing your actual fan base actually, that even allowed you to make this game in the first place. Actually, the new one. Actually, Daniel, the Mirror of Fate for 3DS is actually a side scroller and platformer. Neat. Must find. Must find. <laughs> <laughs> It's true, though, because I remember even the Ocarina of Time is looked back now as this groundbreaking, you know, classic, and, and it is fairly. But I remember at the time it was controversial because it was so different than Link to the Past. Same with Wind Waker. Changed up everything. And they came back to their roots with the, a link between worlds. Yeah, I actually saw that. Gradia right. turned me on to that recently. Um, I didn't even know about it. Uh, but yeah, definitely uh, check that game out on YouTube. Um, it looks pretty awesome. If, if you like Zelda 3 for the Super Nintendo, um, A Link to the Past, great game. Uh, then, mm -hmm. then you'll love you'll, What was it called? The Link Between Worlds? Link, I think. Link, Link Between, Between Worlds. Worlds. Yeah. Okay, yeah, That's check it game. out. All right. Well, my voice is not going to hold out any longer. So, uh, as we mentioned, if you want to support Spam Spam Sam Humbug, really easy way to do that is just buy our games at GOG, but stop by our show notes first and click on any of the GOG links or... Go to ultimacodex.com or podcast.ultimacodex.com and click on the GOG banners in the sidebars there. Um, you don't pay a cent more for the games that you buy, but we get a bit of commission off of it and it's good. But you can also support us on Patreon if uh, if a monthly subscription is more your style. Moral support is welcome too. You can like Ultima on Facebook at facebook.com slash the Ultima series or you can follow at Ultima Codex on Twitter. Another good thing to follow on Twitter is at Ultima Dragons, the Ultima Dragons Twitter account. You can also find, well, I mean, if you want to get your own dragon name, go to udic.org. You can register your dragon name there. There's an Ultima Dragons group on Facebook. There's an analogous group on Google+. It's a bit smaller, a little bit less bumping, but whatever, it's all good. There's a woefully underused Slack group. There's a much more active Discord channel. And there's the Wearmount, which is a unique thing in and of itself. Let's just put it that way. You should go check it out. Um, you can also join us on Discord. We've got our own Discord channel. There'll be a link in the show notes. <sighs> Boolean, where can we find you online? Uh, Facebook.com slash 8virtues, uh, Twitter.com slash 8virtues, uh, Voss, Corp, Bet, Mani on YouTube, Linguistic 
correct me sometime on that pronunciation, please. Come to the twenty uh, fifth. I'll do it then. God, I want to go. By the way, by the way, congratulations. Yes. It's not my place to congratulate anybody because I'm not the ringleader here. But congratulations to Cran uh, Galara. Kill me if I'm mispronouncing uh, Galara. Uh, yeah, sure for the ul- right. Ultimate Dragons 25th anniversary bash raised an insane amount of money on Kickstarter. It's at uh, Disneyland in California, I believe. It's in February. Yeah, and uh, I'm poor, so I probably can't make it. But I'm glad it's happening anyway. That's all I need to be happy. <laughs> Planning um, my trip. Yeah. And anyway, me, Kevin Fishburn, Bully and Dragon, Eight Virtues, I'm all over. So Awesome. Linguistic, how about yourself? Uh, you can find me at ultimatejourneys.blogspot.com. Well, ostensibly, you can find me there. I've been awful quiet on there lately. Um, you can find me on Twitter as Dragon Katea, K-E-T-E-A. Uh, you can find me hanging around the Facebook group every now and again. Um, on rare occasions, you can find me on the Wearmount. And you'll also be able to find me at the 25th. I'll be giving a Gargish lesson there. Nice. I like it. Attentive. Where do you hang out online, if you care to tell anybody about that? Well, you can find me on YouTube if you do a search for Attentive Dragon, um, or you can find me on Twitter at ADD Dragon. ADD Dragon. Wait, so you're Attentive Dragon, and yet your Twitter handle is Attention Deficit. Well, that's where the name originally came from. It was an inside joke to myself. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. Way back when I first signed up. I love it. Awesome. How about yourself, Gradia? You can find me on Facebook, or here on Discord. Awesome. And me, I mean, I'm all over Twitter, at WTF underscore Dragon. I'm on Facebook, of course, ultimacodex.com, although that's been quiet this week. And there's a link in the show notes to my about.me profile, where there's other places you can find me at. And yeah, of course, the Discord channels. All right. Well, thank you all for coming out tonight. Sorry this has been a bit of a shorter one, but uh, I'm glad we were able to get one in the can, at least. Yay! Yeah. Good to have you back, Linguistic. Thank you for joining us, Attentive. Thank you. And until next time, be virtuous. Virtuous.